Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. When I was a kid, I remember a report card that was a traumatic event in the sense that it made a mark in my soul. It stood out to me. It was the first time I got a negative grade. And I came from a get good grades household. I was, I don't know, second or third grade. And this was when the, the time in a student's life and the era in elementary school education when it was thought best instead of A's through F's to give check plus, check check minus, you know, uh, because kids can't decipher that that means they did well or they did poorly, evidently. Um, but the, that was all the, the philosophy at the time. And so I had all, I, I worked hard to get check pluses. And then the, the only one that got a, that was susceptible to a letter grade was the uh, N. Check plus, check, check minus, N, which stands for needs improvement. And um, so if you got an N, it made no difference if it was that or an F. You felt it. It was my first time getting one. And I was so shocked. The teacher was explaining this. And, but all I was doing was looking at the report card to understand what the heck. The subject or the area in which I got an N was self-control. <laughs> that was an area on my report card. And I'm like, when did the fruits of the Spirit become subjects in school? But self-control, I got an N. And I was like, and I remember like my life flashing in front of my eyes and feeling hot and sweaty. And the teacher sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. And my parents were like, really now? But I didn't hear any of them. I just saw N. And so I was reading the little subtitled description. And under self-control, it said, the, the, the descriptor was mastery of impulses. I'm like, well, what the heck does that mean? That's clearly not written for my second grade self. And so I'm thinking mastery of impulses. I'm like, mastery to me meant like I'm a master of something. What does that mean? What is an impulse? And what am I, how does my being the master of it equate to getting a, a failing grade? I mean, I knew like He-Man, the masters of the universe, but that was as, as far as my lexicon went with regard to mastery. It was so, I was so distraught, not because I underperformed, but because I underperformed in, a, in an area that I didn't understand. And the truth of the matter is, there were places and times in my life probably where maybe I was the deviant kid, but this was not one of them. I was a good-hearted kid. I wanted to do what was right. I didn't even know I was doing it. And that's really how self-control works, isn't it? Understanding this last of the fruits of the Spirit, last perhaps on purpose, is a journey inward into the depths of our soul, into the inky darkness where the funky fish swim, where we don't often go consciously. And in so doing, our journey into that place on the inside really is the final frontier. And that's our title this morning. As we continue and wrap up our study through the B-side fruits, the fruits less heralded, we're in Galatians chapter 5 to launch the series. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and yes, self-control. The Holy Spirit produces self-control. Matthew chapter 26 is the passage we're going to look at as our primary text and for our case study in this subtle and hugely significant fruit. The scripture teaches Jesus went with them, his disciples, to the olive grove called Gethsemane. This is, of course, the night before Jesus was crucified. He had had the last supper with his disciples, and then he went out to Gethsemane ostensibly to pray. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And at this point, you may be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with self-control? Well, let's see if we can find out. He went on a little further later and bowed down with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. What you see in this passage is the culmination, the case in point of Jesus' dual nature. Fully God, he was also fully man. And this question brings into sharp contrast, I'm sorry, this episode brings into sharp contrast the age-old question of why. Why did God come to the earth and reveal himself that way? Why did Jesus do what he did, not as God, but as man? Why, as Philippians 2 teaches, did Jesus empty himself, taking on the form of a servant, not considering his God equality as something to be grasped? What was the point in that? Jesus and did God's will through the power of the Holy Spirit. As one theologian observed, he did it to make clear we drink from the same well. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, could have accomplished the redemption work, but Jesus, as the Son of Man alone, could accomplish the exemplary work, showing us how to live redeemed by God, dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because you and I have no hope of being found in very nature God. We have to draw on the Holy Spirit's power for Christ to be formed in us in order to live out God's will for us. And so Jesus left aside his God nature, didn't stop being God, but didn't grasp a hold of it for a minute or two, and did most of what he did on earth during his life and ministry out of his human nature, relying on the Holy Spirit, drinking from the same well, so to speak, to show us how to go that way ourselves. Jesus in scripture referred to himself by the moniker, the son of man, vastly more often than the son of God, both being true. Jesus' humanity modeled for us how to be formed by God through the inner work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' humanity in particular exemplified self-control. Think about it. 
being in very nature God, dot, dot, dot. Every moment is an act of self-control. Controlling the impulse to do it God way instead of man's way, right? I mean, from when you break, wake up in the morning and brush your teeth. If you're God, you just think it and your teeth are already brushed. Or if you're God, maybe plaque does not accumulate while you sleep. But as man, you get up and you do that or whatever it is they did for oral hygiene in the first century AD. When you go to the cross and people are jeering and mocking when you're God, you simply put an end to all this nonsense and them too while you're at it. But when you're man, you restrain that impulse. Jesus' life from this point of view was a constant referendum on the fruit of self-control. The very concept of being in very nature God and not grasping that is the case in point. And today's passage is a focal point for that case. But first, a quick practical theological aside. Doesn't this fruit self-control by its nature contradict the idea of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's either the Holy Spirit's fruit or it's myself's, right? Either the Holy Spirit is growing this sort of fruit in me or I'm doing it by the sweat of my brow, by the grit of my teeth and by the white knuckle of my grip. Which is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it myself controlling me? But I think that that kind of brings us to the point in a way. The Holy Spirit works this in us but at the end of the day, the control is still ours. It's the Holy Spirit's work to bring us to the awareness and to make it possible for us to act on that awareness. But he does it when we yield to him, take over like robots, we respond and do what God wants all of the sudden. He still gives us that choice. Philippians 2, a few verses down from where it describes what theologians call the kenosis, him emptying himself and not considering God equality as something to be grasped. In verse 13, Paul teaches, listen, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. He doesn't do what pleases him for us or through us or overriding our faculties or sensibilities, but he gives us the desire and then he gives us the power to act on that desire rather than so many fruitless searches when we've laid out New Year's resolutions and by, I don't know, early March lost the, realized we never had the power and then lost the desire to make that change in the first place. So what does the Holy Spirit fruit of self-control look like in practical daily life? How does this one play out? In Matthew 26, you see the story of Jesus preparing to go to the cross. And it says in verse 37, he became anguished and distressed. And he told his inner circle of friends, my soul is crushed, crushed with grief to the point of death. Jesus' self-control, his ability to be in very nature God and yet choose to be in very nature man as his leading expression was predicated on his awareness of himself. 
Jesus modeled that self-control starts with self-awareness. In the midst of a journey to the cross that culminated three years of ministry and 33 years of human life, most of them cognizant of how it would end and why he was there. In the midst of carrying the weight of the world's sin, Jesus slows down in the garden and recognizes what's going on in himself and acknowledges and blesses what he's feeling, what's wrong, and what that makes him want to do. The medieval theologian and mystic known as Meister Eckhart and the medieval mystic theologians and the desert fathers before them have kind of come into vogue in late 20th and early 20th century evangelical scholarship for good reason. There was a lot of wisdom that for centuries had been bookshelved. Meister Eckhart made this astute observation back in the early 1300s. A human being has so many skins inside covering the depths of the heart. We know so many things, but we don't know ourselves. Why 30 or 40 hides as thick and hard as an ox's or a bear's cover the soul. Go into your own ground then and learn to know yourself there. Jesus' example shows us that self-control begins with simple self-awareness, simple in concept, but a lifetime in the practice. He asks a question of us. Am I conscious of my heart, my needs, and my desires in a moment? Am I aware of what's going on in the inky darkness of my soul? What's swimming around down there below the surface where the sunlight doesn't reach? Because I've learned over the years, as perhaps have you, that when I'm not aware of it, when I don't understand, name, and validate my feelings, they end up pulling my strings like a puppet and disproportionately controlling my behavior. The second question Jesus asks with his example is, do I permit myself to feel difficult emotions? I developed an unconscious rule, a sort of illicit rule of life when I was very young against that self-permission. The fact is, though, my difficult emotions are real and, over time, inevitable, whether I acknowledge them or not. Christian therapist and author Dan Allender, in his book, The Cry of the Soul, gives voice to this dilemma. He writes, we strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. Can anyone relate to this? We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousnesses. In neglecting our intense emotions, 
We're false to ourselves, and we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. The fact is, self-control is fruitless without self-awareness. We can't control what we do not see or do not acknowledge. And so, the counsel of the psalmist by his own example. In Psalm 139 reads, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, God knows our heart. He knows everything. God knows us whether we invite him to or not. Wouldn't you agree? Otherwise, he kind of stops being God. So what's the psalmist really doing? In inviting God to search him and sitting with God, he's saying, God, reveal me to myself. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. See, the path of everlasting life, he associates with God's careful, slow, searching, and gift of introspection through reflection bathed in the presence of God is how he finds God's everlasting way. And so, Jesus' own example models for us a practice which is so foreign in our fast-paced jam-one-more-thing-in culture that it can take years to put into functional practice. And that is simply periodically and regularly to slow down, to pause and reflect, to look inside and invite the searchlight of the Holy Spirit, our comforter, counselor, and advocate to show us ourselves. It is in that Selah moment, as the Psalms put it, pause and reflect, that we begin the journey of self-awareness. Peter Scazzaro from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality sums it up nicely. The call of discipleship includes experiencing our feelings, reflecting on our feelings, and then thoughtfully responding to our feelings under the lordship of Jesus. I've seen in my life for far too long how unacknowledged emotions have the power to control me. What started as a shock in a parent-teacher conference went on to form beneath the level of my consciousness an ungodly belief that I unearthed in my young adult life when I went through an intensive spiritual, emotional renewal time and with the guidance of some older, more mature believers came to recognize and articulate that ungodly belief. For me, it was that feelings, emotions are, are weak or dirty and they're to be experienced minimally and privately. 
I realized that I had created a, a de facto code for myself that kind of said that feelings and an experience in them was kind of like going number two. Everybody's got to do it. Sorry for the lowbrow, but this, is, this was my young self and my journey. And you do it in private as quickly as safely possible. And above all else, you never talk about it. And that's how my emotional life played out to me. And so acknowledging feelings was something that you wouldn't do. Well, in the course of that journey of emotional and spiritual brokenness and wholeness, we were coached to bring these ungodly beliefs before God, break agreement with them, and then replace them with new godly beliefs. And I came out of that time with new firmware in place that's Took, that took me decades to really live out, but that said that as a child of God made in his image, I am made to feel. God feels. I am made, furthermore, to love God by feeling. With Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is this, love God with all your heart. Every gospel, every translation puts that first. And then your mind, soul, and strength. I can't love God without experiencing the portion of me that is made in his image as an emotional being. And so as such, not only did I learn and to acknowledge and bless my feelings, even the hard ones, but that I'm capable of expressing a full range of healthy emotions. Now, some of you, you knew that from birth, and this is like standing up here and telling you to sing the ABC song. But for a lot of us, this is remedial or maybe even beyond the reach of conscious value. I know it was for me, and I realized there's a certain irony in me talking to you about self-control. Um, I don't really belong here. This is fodder for the Christian cynic that in the name of authenticity loves to point a finger at our hypocrisy. And I would just say, yes, and that's why I deeply need Jesus. You know, in the, the words of a modern day herald and prophet, Megan the Stallion, Express this well. When you know yourself, ain't nobody can tell you nothing. I confess I'm not sure entirely what that means beyond knowing myself, but it sounds profound nonetheless. Some of you are going to remember one thing out of this message, and it is Megan the Stallion. You're going to go home and be like, who even is that? She's a little bit of a big deal right now. All right, Matthew 26 and verse 39, we'll wrap it up here. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will and not mine to be done. This is how I feel. And this is what I choose. Jesus showed us that self-awareness is where self-control begins. It culminates in self-mastery. 
I am made in God's image. In addition to being made emotional, I'm made with will, with volition. It's what it means to be human and not cattle. I have the power, I have the capability of wanting something and not doing it or taking it. I have a will. Now, God reforms that will, but that is part of what it means to be me. I am able to govern my impulses. And that's what mastery, self-mastery is all about. You know, as an elementary school kid, that word eluded me, but it was saying, in effect, my desires and impulses, they report to me. I'm the master of them. I don't have to obey them. Not any longer, because I've been made new in Christ. Genesis chapter 4 finds God talking to Cain and Abel separately. The sons of Adam and Eve and says to Cain, watch out, Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and you must master it. And the directive implies the capability. That I must means I may, I can. Now the old self and the old order of things said from here, dig deeper, grit harder, hold tighter, but sooner or later, willpower fails. That's why Jesus Christ died on a cross, to free us from the tyranny, the slavery to our old sin nature, to give us the power as well as the desire to do what pleases him. And so scripture describes the old sin nature and the new self as being in conflict in us. We're renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it says profoundly in Romans 8, I'm under no obligation to the sinful nature, to obey its passions, lusts, and desires. The implication there is that I do still have before me an invitation. I just don't have to accept it. And that's where the fruit of the Holy Spirit of self-control comes in. The Holy Spirit grows in me slowly but surely the capability to choose according to what pleases God and what ultimately will be for my good. And friends, I think um, when we do otherwise as Jesus followers, when we self-medicate, when we act out, whatever that is for us, when we go there and do that again, it's not because we aren't saved. It's not because we have to. It's because we make a choice in that moment. And I think calling that choice out takes away some of the power that pulls us in the opposite direction. When we choose to follow the directive or indulge the invitation of our old sinful nature, we're saying in effect, God, I'm not sure if I'm honest that you are enough. I'm not sure you have what it takes to fulfill me. And so I'm gonna go vigilante justice and fulfill myself. See, all sin is meeting a legitimate need 
in an illegitimate way. There is a righteous impulse beneath that short-sighted choice. The impulse to find a rich, abundant, what Jesus called overflowing life. God created us for that. And too long has religion stood on the wrong bank of the river saying to follow God is to pretend that you don't desire good things, that you don't wish for your life to go well. We've misunderstood Jesus' call to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. We've understood deny yourself. And as church leadership, we've promulgated this misunderstanding too often that that means deny that I am made for goodness, for blessing, for fulfillment. And instead, pretend like I'm made for self-inflicted pain and misery. And that only lasts so long. It's like gritting your teeth and squeezing the handlebars tightly on the other side of the equation. The question is, will I trust God to fulfill me? Will I trust God to meet my needs? Will I trust God that he knows the plans he has for me and that they're good plans to prosper me, to give me a hope and a future? Will I trust God that he is going to bring these good plans about in his good timing? Did you know the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing? God knows that. And very often his weight is his greatest blessing in our lives. Psalm 37 teaches, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think there's twofold expectation there. One is he'll give you the desires of your heart. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, he overrides old sinful illicit desires, trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. He overwrites them with redemptive, righteous, good, long-term fulfilling desires. He literally gives us new desires. And then when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he fulfills those desires. He gives us what we think that verse means, which is we delight ourselves in the Lord and he gives us the object of the desires of our heart. That's not a God vending machine scripture. That is a truth of discipleship scripture. If we but trust in him, make him our delight and trust that he made us to desire fulfillment. And he alone knows what will fulfill. He'll replace the illicit, short-sighted, self-defeating desires of our old sinful nature with the desires for the good things that God wants to give us. And then he'll fulfill those desires themselves. Remember, the Holy Spirit is working in us, producing this fruit, forming Christ in us, remaking us in the image of our creator. And the Holy Spirit's work is giving us the desire and the power to do what pleases him. If only we'll trust him for it, amen? Will you stand with me? Father, in Jesus' name, how we need you, how we need 
God, the Holy Spirit at work in us, redeeming us, reshaping us, making all things new. And so Holy Spirit, we yield to your careful, righteous, gentle, and capable hand. If you agree with me in faith, just pray this in your heart. I yield. It's not the words, it's the faith. Just say, God, I yield. I yield anew to the Holy Spirit. We invite you, Spirit of God, to make all things new in us. We invite you to have your way in us and to grow this fruit from our lives. We welcome being formed in the image of Christ. Oh, how I want to be aware of what's going on in me like Jesus was, even in that highest pressure moment and how I long at the same time to say, yet even so, God, not my will but yours, to control my impulses. God, would you help us this week to slow down, invite the Holy Spirit, reflect and name, acknowledge, validate, what's going on in us, and then surrender it by choice, by the power of the Holy Spirit to your authority. And Jesus, would you grow good fruit in our lives? We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 